Tonight I want to speak about awareness as a lifestyle. Initially, when we come to Dharma practice, we first um, get exposed to the Dharma and we pick up some Dharma practice. It seems like an effortful uh, chore to develop a technique for some specific uh, goal of the spiritual life, whether it's keeping the precepts to uh, purify your speech and behavior or calming the mind through some concentration practice or learning how to bow 100,000 times or whatever it is. There's, there's just many uh, different spiritual practices that seem to take a lot of effort and intention in the beginning of practice. And we do that because we expect some result. We, we, we think there's going to be a spiritual benefit, um, or we hope there is. And uh, at most, we can only have heard about it from books or teachers or others. But without our own experience, we don't really know. And so we begin a journey of self-discovery on the spiritual path. And in time, and everyone has their own time for this, we make a transition from techniquing and effortful aim towards some spiritual experience, <clears throat> make the transition from Dharma practice being that to Dharma practice really being, well, a lifestyle of awareness where we live life, sometimes doing formal practice, sometimes more often just living our ordinary householder life, fulfilling our civic, social, professional, domestic responsibilities with an ongoing interest, observation, balance in mind, understanding, joy or delight, even with very ordinary or, or boring experience. And we understand that there really is nothing in our life that is outside of Dharma practice. The qualities of heart, the qualities of mind, that are activated and developed and brought into balance through this process of practice and reach their maturity in this ongoing lifestyle of awareness are known as the five spiritual faculties or the five controlling faculties. And they're called that because they are the five that most control the unfolding of the mind, of the heart, in Dharma practice towards Dharma understanding. And these five are first, sadha, or faith, or confidence. Second is virya, energy, also sometimes just called perseverance. The third is sati, mindfulness, or the capacity to observe the present moment. The fourth is samadhi, or stability of mind, collectedness of mind, sometimes called concentration. And the fifth is panya, or wisdom, which is skillful understanding, understanding what leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering. And together, the activity of these five faculties, when brought into balance, is the dynamic life of awareness. So awareness has the element of faith, it has an element of understanding. It has an element of mindfulness or mindful observing. It has the element of stability of mind. It has the ongoing 
energy of persevering or that sounds a little that sounds actually a little a little grindy actually the energy of mature awareness is more just not collapsing just like just like being there for whatever the present moment offers the interesting thing about these five faculties of mind is if we develop mindfulness itself all of them come along but we can and there are individual practices for all of them and they develop in a gradual sequential cyclic way what that means is we start out with a little faith which allows us to make a little effort which allows us to be a little bit mindful which when sustained for a while allows us to have a little bit of stability of mind which allows a concentration collectedness which allows us to see a little more clearly a little more deeply to understand things a little more accurately but with that increased awareness and increased understanding we feel more confident we we have more faith we feel more inspired to practice and so with that increased faith we make more effort and we become more mindful and we become more stable and we see more details understanding more of what is skillful and not skillful in our life and that again bolsters supports our faith to take on more effort and so we can see that there is a causal relationship linkage between each of them one is the cause for the arising of the other the subsequent one they are sequential in now in the way that i just laid them out and they develop uh, gradually so if we keep the thread of awareness all of these active inevitably they'll all get stronger and the the balance of mind will become more noticeable so tonight i want to speak about each of these uh five and to just identify them for you in your practice in your life and to point out some of the dangers when they're not in balance because the whole of practice is about finding balance finding a way to relate to the events of life the body the mind the environment each other in a way that's balanced that's not tipped to one end of a spectrum or another so the first of these is sada faith or sometimes called confidence uh sometimes called or referred to as the 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 assurance of self-knowledge because this kind of faith this kind of confidence comes from one's own personal experience it doesn't come from a book although some people can read a book and their intellect is such that they get really inspired by how they understand what they read and they can get very lit up and infused with faith to pursue a practice based on what they've read but for many of us it is faith in some experience we have that shows us personally intimately that this has got something for us after i got out of college and wandered through law school and ended up in a hippie commune i was more into the grateful dead and pink floyd and the accompanying <laughs> paraphernalia than <laughs> spiritual practice and uh it was a good life i thought but at one point someone on the, in the commune decided they were going to go to what i thought they said was something like a holiday i thought it was something like a cruise on land <laughs> 
So I said, well, that, that sounds good. I'd like to go to that. So we went. It ended up being a two-week retreat. <laughs> Silent meditation, just like this, 14 days at the first three-month course that was offered here in the States. The last two weeks of which was a, was a two-week course for new people. So we went. Prior to that time, I had no spiritual inclination whatsoever other than... <clears throat> Um, <laughs> if you want to call that a spiritual practice. And uh, I didn't know anybody who meditated. I didn't know anything about Buddhism. I, I was a totally relapsed bo- uh, a Christian that, well, never, never was one really, just in name only. But here I was at a 14-day retreat, and when we got there, I thought, what the what am I doing here? This is, I mean, because there was, you know, 60 people there that had been there for two and a half months. They're all wrapped up in blankets. It was in December. You know, the, ret- the retreat started the day after I went to the Bob Dylan Rolling Thunder Review concert. You know. It's like, okay, silence. So, you know, I, I sat way up back. I leaned against the piano the whole two weeks. My body was in excruciating agony, and my mind wasn't much better. At the end of which, I was all too happy to get out of there and get back to the commune. But when I did, and we went back to the commune, everything was the same at the commune. Same building, same people, same relationships, same challenges, same dysfunction, same, same habits, and yet everything looked completely different. Nothing fit. It was all there, but it just didn't fit. It just, it was so clear that I was in a different space. And that was the beginning of the end of the commune for me. And over the course of the next five or six years, gradually transitioned out of the commune into the meditation center and when I first arrived at the meditation center that was purchased shortly after we did our first retreat. I remember saying to one of the people that I was working with there, now mind you, I'd done a two-week retreat. And I was working with this Rodney Smith, actually, who's a teacher in Seattle. I was working with him up in the attic, insulating the attic, and I, we were having a discussion about Nibbana, as if we knew anything about it. <laughs> And I said to him, I have absolutely no doubt that in this lifetime I'll, I will realize the Dhamma. I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> but I had unshakable, just absolutely exhilarating faith and confidence that the practice that I had been exposed to would do the job for me without even knowing what was involved, or even what realizing the Dharma was about. I didn't, I didn't know. But I had no doubt. That kind of faith was the fuel for eight years of doing retreats. It was just like, I didn't have to read a book. I didn't talk, I mean, I talked to some, some people practicing. I just sat. I just wanted to sit all the time. Of course, I had a lot of personal history repair work to do. And that's what it, it took about eight years to kind of clean up my morality, clean up my act, kind of process a little bit of, well, a lot of dysfunctional relationships, uh, get a little physically uh, more cohesive. And, uh, but there came a time after eight years of retreats where I was doing another retreat and I don't know, about three or four days into it, I just had this urgent imperative in the mind, I gotta get out of here. And it wasn't, I gotta get out of the retreat. It was like, I gotta get out of my life. The life that I am living is going nowhere. I was a businessman, I was was a contractor and was successfully building houses and was doing all the early adult things that you're supposed to do, you know, 
have relationships, cars, houses, dogs, pets, <laughs> you know, whatever, accumulating stuff. And that was all going on, but there was no satisfaction in it. There was just some un understanding that this is not fulfilling. More, a newer car, a bigger house, more money, more work, more job, more employees is not going to do it. It's just, it's not. And the, the understanding was so clear that when I left the retreat and went home, well, <laughs> I had to process that for a few months, and I had made the decision. Or I should say that insight, that realization made the decision, I'm giving it up. And off to Asia I went and ended up in a monastery and the rest is other personal history. But what I see in my personal history is the power of faith to fuel practice, even when you don't know what's involved, even when you, 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 don't, you don't know what's involved with yourself, you don't know what's involved in the work, the practice, anything. But that kind of faith each one of us has, because you're here, you're doing something here. Something brought you here. And we don't want to forget that. In the midst of our you know, day of kind of getting through knee pain and backache and whatever it is, remember what got you here. What drove you to take this retreat? This is not a fun thing to do. This is, you know, there's other ways to enjoy a week <laughs> off. But something made you come here. What? It is the inspiration, it is the faith that you have that inspires you to practice. Of course, in the, in the long run, doubts appear. You know, we, we, we have doubts. We have doubts about the teachings. We have doubts about teachers. We have doubts about whether the practice really works. We have doubts about whether we can actually do the practice. We have doubts about what the goal of practice is. All of those will come up for all of us at some point. If you, if you continue on the path, you will, you will have those kind of doubts. You can borrow someone's confidence to temporarily get you through a, an upheaval of doubt. But in the end, only practice can uproot doubt from your mind. We have to see doubt and keep practicing through it. We can read another book for inspiration. We can talk to a teacher. We can have our questions answered. But ultimately, we have to answer all our own questions through practice. And I liken the, the first phase of practice, and this can be a decade or more, to uncovering all the doubt in your mind about practice, every filament, tracing down every filament, every thought, every assumption, every fear, every what if in the mind that stops you from practice. Every one. Because doubt must be uprooted, uprooted, not just suppressed, uprooted before <laughs> confidence in the Dharma is unshakable. <coughs> and it's possible. But with that faith, however we come to it, and however much or however little we have, then we can make effort. The Buddha, it is said, spoke more about effort than any other topic in his 45 years of teaching. Why? Well, because nothing is accomplished without effort. Nothing. You can't bake bread without making an effort. You can't sweep the floor. You can't do anything without making an effort. And certainly, not fulfill your spiritual aspiration. So, what is it that's going to fuel or support your making that effort? Yeah, you have faith. But for me, it was a sense of urgency. And in Buddhist language, this sense of urgency is called samvega, samvega. And it is 
as I saw it, it is just this realization that this is life. This is not a hobby. This is life. And it's going by. Time is only running out. There's no second chance. You know, this, this moment is gone. You don't get to live this moment again. It's over. You're on to the next one. And whatever it is that arouses that sense of urgency in you, for some people, is when they get sick. They get really sick, they get close to death, they, you know, even at a young age, or they, they have relatives that it happens to, and they get, they get a glimpse. They get a glimpse of just life is, even a long life is really brief. What is it that's worth doing? What are you doing with your life? Is it really what you want to be doing? Yes, we all have to have our finances in order. We've got to keep our health together. We've got to have a domestic situation, often involving others. You've got to do all that. But what are you doing with your life? That's, that's just kind of the groundwork. But where are you going? What's, what is leading you onward? What is onward leading for you? Because that's what will get you on your butt. <laughs> Instead of off your butt, it'll get you on your butt. So you can get some practice on, the, on, the, on there. So I went to Burma because I wanted to sit until I didn't want to sit anymore. I wanted to ordain and live as a Buddhist monk, and I wanted to live in a, Burm in a, in a Buddhist country to see what kind of widespread Buddhist practitioner society or culture would be like. There were innumerable challenges. I'd never been out of the country. I'd never been out of New England before I went to Burma. <laughs> and needless to say, everything was foreign. <laughs> Weather, climate, food, language, everything. <laughs> everything. It was like, but I was so resolute. I was like, I didn't care what happened. I was there to practice. And there were lots of opportunities to do other things. Oh, learn to speak Burmese, and anybody would have hired me to teach them English. Travel around the country, look here, do this, do that. All, all kinds of distractions from practice. But it's that non-collapsing, persevering in the face of anything, energy that's required. Eventually. We can, we can take as long as we want to get there, but that's what's required in the end. The energy of just persevering. It's not grit your teeth, hunch your shoulders, clench your fist, and it's not that kind of energy. It's just a willingness to be here. Right now, again, and again, and again, and again. Now, I'm going to show you what non-persevering is, but you have, to look, you have to look to see this. It's this. <laughs> That's collapsing. That's just internally collapsing in the face of something that arose in the mind, that arose in the body, that arose in your environment. Something looked overwhelming. And the mind goes, that's collapsing. The energy that's required is non-collapsing. It's not overcoming. It's not defeating. It's not beating up. It's not winning. It's just not collapsing. And what that requires is a willingness to, to be there, to be there. It's not difficult to be aware or mindful, Saito Utejaniya says. It is difficult to maintain it continuously. And for that, you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. Now, all of my practice with Upandita in Burma was through a translator. And sometimes he had very good translators, and sometimes he had 
marginal translators. But nevertheless, whoever showed up, that's who I used. But Sayadaw used to say something which almost every translator translated as, please try harder. So every time, every day, I got this, please try harder. Now, I was busting my hump. I was like, I was, <laughs> I was really in inspired practice. I was, I was not taking the easy route either. And I was determined to do whatever had to be done. But it was not possible to try harder. I was trying as hard as I could. There was, I didn't get it. So I tried harder. But trying harder just made me more tense and tight and frustrated and painful. I now realize what he meant was, please be more continuous. I wish somebody had translated it that way for me. <laughs> you know, save me from about four years of mm, agony. Nevertheless, we learn what we got to learn when we got to learn it. What we do when we make skillful effort, persevering effort, non-collapsing effort, is we establish mindfulness with some continuity. You know, uh, Carlos Castaneda, who wrote all the books about Don Juan and his spiritual journey of awakening, Casta uh, Castaneda, Carlos wrote, Don Juan assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion, and that it was absurd. I had now realized I could work just the same in making myself complete and strong. The truth is in what one emphasizes, he said. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. kind of work are you doing? <laughs> I mean, we really have to ask that question. We have to work hard to make ourselves miserable. And we have to work equally hard to make ourselves free and strong. But with this non-collapsing energy, we can observe, with, with the right instruction, we can observe what is going on in our heart in our mind. And this ability to observe is mindfulness, sati. There's been book after book after book written on mindfulness or awareness or something like that. But the essence of mindfulness is to remember. Mindfulness is to remember to recognize the present moment. To remember that this moment is all there is to your life right now. This is it. That's it for this moment. The past is gone. The future has not yet arrived. If you're here for this one, you're alive. If you're not here recognizing remembering and recognizing this moment's experience, you're not alive. Just as if dead, absent. Awareness, mindfulness is to remember this is it. This is all there is in this moment. Just this. It is so difficult to remember. It is so difficult to remember to acknowledge life moment after moment. It is just, and why? You've been watching your mind for, for seven days. Why? Why is it so difficult to remember, to observe, and recognize, and to acknowledge the present moment's experience? We're even trying to. We're, we're getting a lot of encouragement to. And it's still impossibly difficult, almost impossibly difficult. What we see are 
the habits of the mind. We see how powerful the habits of the mind are to get lost in fantasies and bewilderments and, you know, stories from stories. Stories of our life from the past, stories of our life from the future, hardly a wisp of what's going on right now. And we're entangled. We're so entangled in the past, we're so entangled in the future, we don't have any energy. And we can't even remember to be present. That's a sad situation, excuse me, but that's a sad situation. How is it that we can so prefer the pain of the past and the fear of the future that we'd rather live there than in the present? If you look, you'll see. Or to the extent that we look, we will see why it's so difficult to live in the present moment, to be, to be aware. So, the first time I practiced Zupandita, there were 20-some of us practicing for three months. So we got an interview every day, and I was not very, not very skillful in my practice. I was still a novice. I'd only been practicing eight years, but I was just a beginner. It took me a long time. I am a slow learner, just in case you don't know. I'm a slow learner. Anyway, I was reporting every day after this woman who happened to be a really good yogi. And, you know, she was, I was standing in the hall waiting for her to finish her report, and I could hear her giving her report to Saito. And one day I was standing in the hall outside, and she's in there giving this excited, you know, very exclamatory report about how she was remembering her past lives and different things that were going on in her past lives. And it's like, wow, whoa, you know, it's like, it's like, and I was like, past lives? Where's the breath? <laughs> you know. Anyway, she came out just kind of floating down the hallway. And <laughs> so I went in to, to report to Bandita and I, in my utter frustration and excruciating agony of heart and mind, I just kind of, I did my bows, and then I blurted out to him. I said, what are we supposed to be doing here? Remembering our past lives or something? <laughs> and he looked at me and said, no, remembering this life. Remembering this life, not past lives, not future lives, this life. Mindfulness has the capacity to bring us or it is the function of bringing us right up close to the present moment. You can't be mindful of the past. You can't be mindful of the future. You can only be mindful of this moment. And so it is touching this moment's experience with the heart, with the mind. Not with your thoughts, not with your beliefs, not with your judgments, not with your fears, joys, sorrows, anything. It's just taking the mind taking the heart and putting it right on this present moment to feel it. What does it feel like? Sairo Pandita says, a life without mindfulness is like food without salt. You know food without salt? It's kind of like mushy, but the flavor is really bland. Really bland. A little bit of salt Man, really enhances the flavor of anything. Mindfulness does that. When, you, when, when we develop mindfulness and taste the present moment with mindfulness, it's got flavor. And you really, rec you can, it's impossible not to recognize it. Without mindfulness, life is just bland, boring, you know, same, same, all the habits, just kind of. You ever had a day like that? <laughs> ever had a life like that? You know, if your life is not really tasty, develop some mindfulness because that's where the flavor of life really comes, gets known. doesn't matter what we are aware of, what we are mindful of. In the present moment, everything in your life 
occurs in a present moment. Everything occurred at a present moment time. Nothing happened somewhere else and suddenly became part of your life. Everything in your life occurred. Everything that ever will occur in your life will occur in a moment to be tasted if you're there for it. If you have the courage, if you have the patience, if you have the clarity to the willingness, the interest, the curiosity, all of those are support for mindful awareness. But the mindfulness itself is the tasting, the remembering to actually taste this moment. One thing about um, the development of mindfulness, it is not personal to you. Mindfulness is another one of those conditions capacities of the mind that if the causes and conditions for it are present it will arise. It's not whether you're present that it will arise. Yes, we have to have aspiration. Yes, we have to make an effort. Yes, it's good to have some faith. But the other conditions that give rise to a moment of mindfulness includes wise attention. We have to pay attention. We have to know what we're doing. We have to know how to pay attention. We have to know what the present moment is. But it's not a personal, like some people can do it and some people can't. It's not that at all. We all start out terribly. <laughs> I mean, well, mostly, mostly we're not mindful until we start Dharma practice. And it takes each of us some amount of time to even get what mindfulness is about and then to develop it enough to where you can actually see it. You can actually uh, see a momentum of it in your life. It is the continuity of mindfulness, moment by moment, that collects the mind, that makes the mind more powerful. And one of the conditions for the continuity of mindfulness is clear perception. Perception is being able to recognize the uniqueness of this moment. So if in the tasting of this moment you recognize its flavor, oh, this is an orange, oh, this is fear, oh, this is delight, perception, a clear recognition of the uniqueness of this moment, the unique flavor of this moment, then that clear perception conditions the next moment to be mindful. Clear perception in this moment conditions mindfulness in the next moment. One of the tools that we offer Unclear, being known clearly. Chaos, being known clearly. It's like looking at a Jackson Pollock painting sometimes. You know, you look at your mind, Jackson Pollock's been in there. <laughs> you know, and he's got the you know, he's got this huge, you know, guy gigantic, you know, just like big canvas, and it's just got splashes and drips and splashes. It's just it's it's a chaotic mess when you first look at it. But if you keep looking at it and you say, okay, I'm going to look at all the reds, let's see, there's all the reds, doo -doo 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 -doo. there's all the yellows, there's all the strings, there's all the splots, there's all the... Eventually, although it looks chaotic in the whole, when you start 
picking it apart and looking at it pixel by pixel, you can start to make sense of it. You can start to put it together. It starts to have some narrative to it. So too, whatever it is you're looking at in your own mind, as chaotic, as dark, as murky, as un, un as, as obscure as it is, if you just keep picking at it with this clear perception, the narrative of your life will unfold in front of you, and you'll see it. You'll see it pixel by pixel, moment by moment, clearly. attention, clear perception, and a prior moment of mindfulness. If you're, moment, if you're mindful in this moment, you're more likely to be mindful in the next moment. But the question is always, where does the first moment come from? Clear perception. Wise attention and clear perception. So that's what we want to work on when we feel that the momentum of our mindfulness is weak. Work on, am I attending to things correctly, why, skillfully? And is there a clear recognition of what this moment's experience tastes like, feels like? With the continuity of mindfulness, it's like we collect the mind moment by moment just collect another piece of the mind the mind that the, the mind that would have wandered off in that thought we just catch that mind and bring it in here and the one that would wander off into that thought we catch it and bring it back here and we just keep bringing in more pieces of the mind more energies of the mind that are just ready to fly out and fly away into the past the future elsewhere anywhere but here and we just bring it in and and gradually we collect the mind and it becomes more powerful now, what does it mean to say the mind becomes more powerful? What does the mind do? The mind loves, the mind hates, the mind enjoys, the mind is clear, the mind is cloudy, the mind thinks, the mind... Everything, everything, everything in our life is done with the mind, done by the mind. Even to move the body, it's done by the mind. So when, the, when, when practice collects the mind, it magnifies everything that we do. It brings everything right up close and personal, as if we were looking at it through a magnifying lens or a microscope, not at arm's distance, not even at a far distance on the horizon. It's like right up close and personal, really personal. And because of that, it magnifies everything so that a little irritation becomes a major problem. You know, a little bit of compassion becomes, you know, feeling the suffering of the world. A little bit of clarity becomes piercing clarity. A little bit of fear becomes extraordinary terror. is in the closet, you know, and so everything was okay. You just didn't talk about it. You didn't talk about anything. When I was growing up, I had one emotion. Fun. It was called moody. <laughs> you know, if life wasn't perfect, I was moody. I didn't, I had no understanding of any other terrain
Now I have two. <laughs> I found more than, a more than a few. But it took extraordinary uh, diligence to moment after moment after moment after moment, what is this, what is this, what is this, what is this? And after I'd been practicing for, let's see, eight years doing retreats and about two years of 20 hours a day practice in the monastery, something appeared in my mind that I had never seen before. I recognized a narrative, a voice in the mind that was so quiet that I had never seen it before. And it went like this, oh poor me. And fill in the blank, oh poor me, blank. I can't do this because I'm too old. I'm not happy because I'm in Burma. I can't do this, oh poor me, oh poor me. Da, 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 da. Anything could be in the blank. But whenever things weren't okay, for whatever reason, it was like, oh poor me. This, this totally deflating self-pity. I'd never seen that before in my life. Never. I mean, I thought I was, you know, confident and of going and gregarious and successful that way. But when I saw this self-pity, I realized I have resorted to that my whole life. Never knew it. Never knew it. And it was only when the mind finally got collected, enough of the mind got collected, that I could see, because it's very subtle. In, in my mind, it was just very subtle. It was so beneath the radar, you couldn't see it. You know, in your normal life, you, in normal acti daily activity, you'd never see it. I'd, I'd never see that. Even in deep practice, never see it. But eventually, the mind got collected enough and honest enough, straight enough to say, look at this. And there it was. I made recognizing self-pity, <laughs> you know, my, my, that was my goal. I am going to recognize, because every time it arose, I, I stopped practice. I just couldn't, I, I couldn't practice anymore. I was, you know, because there's something wrong with me. Oh, oh, oh poor me. You know, uh, you know, I got to wait till I'm not poor me, you know, to, to continue with practice. You know, and it was like, it was just relentless. But I got more relentless. I was not collapsing. I was not going to collapse around that. And over the course of, I don't know if it was a few weeks or a few months, but every time I walking or sitting, and I'd see the mind go, oh, poor me. Oh. <laughs> I would go, uh. <laughs> okay, I, I got it, I, I see you, you know. And at some point, it never arose again. I never see self-pity. It never, it cannot get established, you know, uh, evidently. It cannot get established in my mind. I am so alert to that feeling. It's a feeling. It's a feeling. It's not, you know, whatever the blank, whatever's in the blank, that's not, that's not it. It's a feeling of collapse. It's a feeling of incapacity. We can do that with any feeling, any emotion, any mental state in your mind. You can see it every time it arises. You can, you can catch it in the split second it arises and, and understand it and get a handle on it and, and keep it out of your mind forever. You can uproot it from your mind. Now I'm going to ask you a question. It's very personal. You've been looking at your mind for seven days. You've heard all the stories of your suffering. Oh, poor me, because what? I'm too old, I'm too young, I did too many drugs, I didn't do enough drugs, I gotta take drugs, I, you know, I, I had an alcoholic father, an alcoholic mother, I'm a Catholic, I'm a recovering Catholic, I, I wanna be a Catholic. I, you know, or, or, I'm a reborn Christian, I should've been reborn a Christian. I, what, you know, you know, I wanna be a Buddhist, I don't wanna be a Buddhist. I'm, a, I, you know, I'm already enlightened, I'm not yet enlightened. What, Whatever your story of suffering, these are the spiritual suffering stories, but whatever your story of suffering, it's a feeling. 
is a feeling. That's it. That's it. There's no reality to that story other than what you give it every time it arrives, in, arrives at your mind. No matter what story you're telling yourself, it springs from a feeling. And if it's causing you suffering, it's because you haven't seen the feeling yet. You haven't acknowledged it, accepted this is the way it is, I'm going to see it. I'm going to understand it. I'm going to catch it every time it arrives, in the, arrives at the mind door. And you can. You can. That's the, that's the path of practice. That's the path of liberation. To free the mind from suffering and all the sources and all the causes of suffering. But it takes this collective mind. It takes this continuity of mindfulness to collect the mind so that there isn't some part of the mind hanging out in self-pity over there. Or, you know, fear over here. Or, you know, shame or humiliation or whatever your particular skeleton in the closet is. Open that closet door and shine a light in there. And recover that mind, that, the mind that's holding that in the dark. Because to keep things out of the mind takes a tremendous amount of energy. It's exhausting. And if you're keeping things out, you know, like you don't want to feel fear, you don't want to feel shame, you don't want to feel humiliated, you don't want to feel what that feels like, all that energy to keep it out is energy that you need to become aware and free yourself from. This is the value of collecting the mind, stabilizing the mind so that the mind is not running off into the closet. But you can keep it present so you can shine the light of the mind on the present moment's experience. And that's what mindfulness is. The Buddha said, there is no limit to how collected the mind can become. No limit to how concentrated the mind can become. And when the mind becomes collected, it becomes unified. It begins to make sense of everything. It begins to weave everything into a unitary understanding, if you will. When the mind is collected and you're walking on the floor, random patterns of grain in the wood make sense. Random pebbles in the pavement outside is a special message just for you. <laughs> it's true. You know, when the mind is collected, everything comes together in, to, into a unity. Now, this is good because nothing escapes the, the view from the collected mind, but it's not a very skillful understanding. Just to give you an example, Deepama, uh, one of our teachers from India, passed away several years ago now. Extraordinary. I mean, some of you have read her story, huh? Read her book, uh, Knee Deep in Grace, or the story of Deepama. Just extremely powerful, powerfully concentrated mind. Well, Jack Engler, a friend of ours, uh, in doing his doctoral thesis at Harvard, um, administered a whole battery of Western psychological tests to Deepama and her other friends that had all attained one, two, or three stages of enlightenment. And so one of the tests was a Rorschach test. So Jack, through a translator, gave Deepama a Rorschach test. You know, the, the inkblot test. You know, and it starts out a little easy inkblot, you know, like a folded piece of paper, looks like a butterfly. And what else do you see here? You know, and where do you see it? And, you know, as you go through the Rorschach, you know, you have to, you have to tell them everything you see reflected. Of course, it's just an inkblot. It's, it's, it's like pebbles in the pavement. It's just an inkblot. There's nothing there except an inkblot and your mind projecting onto it. So you tell them what you see and where you see it. Well, as you go through the 10 cards, they get more complex. They get more colorful. They get really random. Okay. And yet, you got to say what you see and what it feels like and you know where you see it and point it out. And then someone else will 
analyze the results. Well, when the person who got her Rorschach results to analyze, analyzed them, he realized he had never seen anyone do what she did with the Rorschach test. Never. So amongst themselves, they started looking around to see if anyone else had ever done something like this with the Rorschach. And they found one other person that had done something similar, but not quite the same. What Deepama had done was told a story about that included everything she saw in all ten pictures. And it was a single story about the Dharma. That's it. It was like there weren't separate pictures, there weren't separate anything. It was a story, ten pictures making a story. And the only other person that had done something similar was a Native American shaman. That's how unified her mind was. Everything was, everything was in there. Everything in all ten pictures was in one thing, a story, one story. That's what the unified mind does. It can, it can take the most disparate things and, and link them together. That's why it is so easy to come to the misunderstanding through samadhi, we're all one. It's, it's, a, it's an obvious understanding to come to when you see that we're all one. But let me just say, without getting into too much detail, the Buddha said that is a pernicious wrong view. And I'll leave you to figure that out. Uh, we're not talking about that tonight. But just that we're all one is a pernicious wrong view of the way things really are. But it is almost impossible to escape believing that when you practice samatha, or concentration practice. Okay. Just a cautionary tale there. <clears throat> but with the collected mind, with this stability of mind, with this concentrated mind, when we look at phenomena with insight, when we look at our experience with insight, with seeking to understand the way things really are, what do we see? Well, I talked about investigation a couple nights ago, and we see what the right view of practice is. We understand why we're practicing, we understand how to practice, we understand the motivation for practice, we understand what attitude to bring to practice, and with these understandings and practice, we confirm that this is a skillful way to practice. And then we start looking at, well, what's, what's actually happening in practice? And one of the ways that I articulate the first understanding that we all have to come to is, in every moment, something is arising to be known. That sounds like, what, what the, what's he talking about? <laughs> Something's about to be known. I heard that for years. I didn't know what the heck he was talking about. Manindra used to say, do you see that something's arising to be known? And I go, um, I don't know. I don't know if I see that or not. I, I don't know. Do you know? Do you know if that's how you're seeing moment-to-moment -moment experience? Something is arising to be known? Preliminary knowledge. The second knowledge that we gain is we understand or we begin to understand that everything that arises, arises due to its own causes and conditions. It is a naturally occurring event, not caused by anybody. Everything is just the natural unfolding of causes and conditions. Second preliminary understanding, to be grok, to be understood through practice. And then we get to Vipassana. Everything that arises dissolves everything. No matter what you have ever seen, ever experienced, ever felt, ever believed, whatever. It has arisen, it's endured for a little while, it has dissolved, and it is gone. Everything. If we could, if we could see that clearly and extrapolate into the present and beyond that understanding, we would live our lives very, very Instead, 
our time trying to stabilize things, stabilize our health and relationships and finances and governments and economies and environment. We, we try to keep things the way that they are, the way that we feel safe with, the way that we want them to be, when in fact we've already seen and we know everything is arising and passing away. We know things are impermanent. We know things change. But we don't live from that understanding. It's so threatening. It's so terrifying. It's so difficult. It's like we don't know what's coming next. Well, that's another one. That's another thing that we see. Another understanding that we get is things are changing out from underneath us. We don't know what's coming next. We, we can't control what is going to arise in our environment, in our body, in our mind in the next moment. Can we? We've all seen that. I hope you've seen that. That's basic knowledge of pay attention for, for, for a half hour to your mind. It's there staring you in the face. But it's so hard to grok it. It's so hard to get it, to really see this is the way it is all the time. All the time. Everything is like that. Ooh. If we could see that and take it in and live with that, live from that knowledge, we would live very differently. And let me let me point out one further knowledge that we that we see. And that is that you know everything you've ever wanted, everything that you've ever pursued, everything that you've ever gotten that you really wanted, relationships, careers, knowledge, house, car, you know, more Grateful Dead shows than anybody else, whatever, you know. Are you satisfied yet? We pursued them all, seeking satisfaction, seeking some sort of satiation. It's like, got it, been there, done that, satisfied, finished. Do we think there's something out there still to get that's going to make us satisfied? It's going to allow us to feel content and satisfied? If we still believe that, we're not paying attention. We're just not paying attention. We're not able to grok what it is we're actually seeing. So we're looking at this stuff every day. We're looking, especially if you're practicing, you're seeing that things change. Things are just incapable of providing satisfaction. Things are not able to be predicted. They're contingent. They arise due to conditions that we don't control. We see it, but we don't understand it. We don't understand this is the way it is. The facts are staring us in the face, but it is so difficult to get because the layers of delusion in the mind are so thick. That's why wisdom is the goal. Developing the understanding of this is the way it is. That is what is going to change our life. That is what is going to really bring some understanding, some understanding that's going to allow us to finally stop searching, stop looking, stop grasping, stop pretending that it's otherwise than the way it is, that what, what we see. And when we can do that, when we can grok it, when we can say, got it, I'm going to live from that. Then we'll be at peace. Because we won't be struggling with the way things are. We'll be at peace. The mind will just be there. Everything else continues as it is. You still got to get up. You still got to go to the bathroom. You still got to eat. You got to do the dishes. You got to get dressed. You got to, got to maintain your relationships. All that. You still got to do all that. But you're not suffering. That is the development of wisdom that comes inevitably from the development of the five spiritual faculties. Gradually and cyclically and sequentially, we just go around and develop a little more faith, a little more wisdom, a little more awareness, a little more energy, a little more concentration, a little more wisdom, a little more faith. And in time, all of them will be mature and they'll be in balance. 
everything will be free. That's why awareness really is a lifestyle choice. It's not just a practice we do. When in your life are you going to do that practice and then not do it? No. It's like life is practice. Life is awareness. Without awareness, no life. Continuity is the key, even here on retreat. Just being as continuous as you can, just to be mindfully present with the ordinary, mundane stuff. Because that's where the understanding matures. That this is the way it is. And that's where we come to terms with all of our hopes, fears, joys, sorrows. And we can accept this is the way it is. Let's sit for a moment, let the words quiet down. <laughs> 